This is episode three of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode three of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the Center. In this episode, we sit down with Brad Gregory, professor of history, director of the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study, member of the Center's faculty advisory committee, and author of a new book on Martin Luther and the foundations of the Protestant Reformation. Let's head into the Maritime Library for this week's conversation. I'm here today with Brad Gregory of the Center's Faculty Advisory Committee. Brad is the director of the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study and the Dorothy G. Griffin Professor of Early Modern European History at Notre Dame, where he has taught since 2003. He specializes in the history of Christianity in Europe during the Reformation and on the long-term influence of the Reformation era on the modern world. He has written or edited several books, including Salvation at Stake, Christian Martyrdom in Early Modern Europe in 1999, Seeing Things Their Way, Intellectual History and the Return of Religion, 2009, and The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society in 2012. His most recent book, Rebel in the Ranks, Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the Conflicts that Continue to Shape Our World, was published by HarperCollins in September 2017 and will be the subject of our conversation today. Outside his study in the classroom, Professor Gregory is an avid road cyclist and sings bass in the Notre Dame Basilica Scola. He is a sports-loving calligrapher who appreciates fine food and good wine, and now I'm really sad I didn't bring us a glass here today, but Professor Gregory, thank you. Welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the program. Well, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, how did you come to Notre Dame? Uh, so I've been at Notre Dame as a faculty member since 2003, came in the fall of that year and started teaching in, in January of 2004. But the real important introduction or substantive introduction to Notre Dame that I had was uh, a semester I spent the previous year, the spring semester of 2002, as a visiting faculty member. I was on the faculty uh, at that time at Stanford University in California. I had just the year before that in 2001 got early tenure at Stanford, so I could have could have stayed at Stanford if I wanted to, let my skin get all wrinkly like a raisin from the California sun. But um, but instead, uh, it, it took just uh, a few months here at Notre Dame and uh, seeing the extraordinary uh, offering of restaurants and other cultural amenities of South Bend over the Bay Area that no I'm, of course I'm kidding what what really what what really uh, caught me um, and and really impressed me uh, when I came to Notre Dame was that this was a place that was both um, seriously and substantively Catholic mm-hmm. and it was also um, bidding and wanted to become uh, a great world research university and uh, that was an intoxicating and a really appealing combination. One thing led to another, and um, the next year there was a, a job search in my field in the history department, mm-hmm. and uh, I applied for that position and was offered uh, the job, and I think probably stunned, uh, in fact, I know I did, stunned my colleagues at Stanford that I would choose to leave uh, Shangri-La in, in 
uh, Palo Alto for for the wilds of uh, a term I didn't even know until I came to uh, Northern Indiana, Michiana. So, yeah. um, but that's that's the short uh, the the short version of the story. And uh, what do you teach on a regular basis? I'm a so I um I I teach both graduate and undergraduate uh, courses. My my I teach a graduate seminar usually every year. Um, that's focused on some aspect of uh, Reformation history broadly construed. So not only the Protestant Reformation, but let's say Christianity in the Reformation era. Mm -hmm. So European Christianity, uh, the Latin uh, world, I I don't do Eastern Orthodoxy, I don't have those languages and that expertise, but both Protestantism and Catholicism, uh, starting in the the, the late Middle Ages and and running up into the, uh, through the 16th and up into the 17th century. So I do graduate courses on different topics that are really usually quite focused and scholarly intensive. And then I teach a range of different undergraduate uh, courses as well. I've, I've taught uh, courses on Christianity and the Reformation era as a whole. I've taught uh, courses, uh, lecture courses on the Catholic Reformation specifically that I developed for here at Notre Dame. I also teach a course uh, based on one of the chapters in the book that you mentioned before, one of the ones you mentioned before, The Unintended Reformation, mm-hmm. a course called Christianity, Commerce, and Consumerism, the last 1,000 years, uh, which is basically about um, the very long-term transformation of how a religious tradition, Christianity, in which greed is one of the seven deadly sins, Mm -hmm. uh, over a very long period of time and in complicated ways, gave rise to the most consumerist societies in the history of the world. And I tell the students at the beginning of the semester, that's the question we're going to try to answer over the course of of these 16 weeks. And... um, it makes them squirm sure. uh, because, in a certain sense, they are being, you know, asked to to question and think about where do these practices and attitudes that they take for granted. At the same time, of course, that many of them are Catholics or other Christians, and I remind them of all those New Testament passages about you know camels passing through the eye of a needle right. and the parable of the rich young man and. Uh, many others besides, um, and we try to understand that together. So those are some of the classes that I teach. Is that the sort of class where you think the students actually, their lives may be changed just a little bit? Oh, because that, I know they are, because yeah. not, not all not all have told me that, but, sure. I, know, but I know other st- the students have told me uh, as a result. I mean, how, how much they both appreciated the class and also found it uh, difficult, uh, challenging. Yeah. But I think that, to me, that is one of the reasons I came to Notre Dame was to be able to teach a class like that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that that's really a course that seems to me where the my, my expertise and as a, as a historian um, intersects with my interest in and concerns about um, moral imperatives, the way that people live, how how people lead their lives, and so forth. Um, that comes out of a, of a Catholic commitment. So it's been it's enormously satisfying. I really like teaching that class and. Um, I'm going to be teaching it again this spring, in fact. Wow. Do you allow people to sit in? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Whoever wants to can sit in. (laughs) Well, let's talk a bit about your book, uh, your most recent book, uh, Rebel in the Ranks, which really does build upon themes found in your previous book, as you mentioned, The the Unintended Reformation, Um, specifically in kind of highlighting the idea that what early reformers like Luther hoped to realize kind of as the result of his efforts to reform the church would really be quite at odds with what the modern effects of that change would be. Um, Can you walk us through maybe a bit of what the reformers were intending to do, maybe especially in regards to like freedom and and how the how is that played out? Sure. That's I mean, um, well, let's I'll I'll start with Luther, because um, 
even to say the early reformers uh, among whom Luther is one already changes the picture because Luther says certain things um, about his own very intense, distinctive religious experiences and, and what he thinks they, they imply and, and then stakes a claim about the importance of God's word in the Bible as the, the kind of cornerstone uh, principle to which he's going to hold. Almost immediately, though, some of his colleagues uh, love the principle but disagree with him about what, in fact, Scripture is saying, what God's word and will are, mm-hmm. and, and that leads very quickly already in, in the early 1520s, so the very outset of the Reformation, to conflicts and, and um, divisions within those who reject the, the Catholic Church that are going to have all kinds of implications for the way that things unfold. So the early reformers is 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 a broader group than just Luther. Mm-hmm. So let's just stick with Luther for the moment and your question sure. about about human freedom. Yeah. So Luther um I mean Luther's concerns come out really of his own anxiety and spiritual struggles and inability to find consolation and a sense of uh tranquility and genuine forgiveness within the practices uh, of, of, of living the life of a devout Augustinian friar, which is, of course, what Luther is for yeah. 10 years before he ever becomes a public figure in 1517 and writes the 95 Theses and, and, and starts a whole new phenomenon. Um, he, Luther is absolutely conscientious, super introspective, very devout, keen to try to live the life of, of of um, monastic life, the life of a friar, as rigorously as he can. And he finds that the more he introspects and the more he puts himself through kind of ascetic paces of self-discipline and introspection and confessing his sins, the, the less he is able to find the peace that he seeks. That is really the kind of existential underpinning for what is going to become his vision of a different way in which Christians stand before God, in, which, in the way in which they experience God's grace, the experience of forgiveness, repentance, all of it. It intersects with the way in which he is dissatisfied and concerned initially that a lot of lay Christians are being misled because of misunderstandings and mischaracterizations by indulgence preachers about what exactly is at stake in um, Christian repentance, contrition, forgiveness, and so forth. And so his, his existential uh, misgivings, if you will, about the, the, the church's practices and theology of, uh, of, of uh, penance and confession intersect with a pastoral concern about lay Christians being misled. And that's the kind of the, 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 the brew that comes through. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to skip over. I'm not going to give you the whole narrative sure, here. Sure, no, no, no. But by the time Luther writes his um, – the, the gist of the matter is, is, is this. Whereas it was assumed in late medieval Christianity, although never specifically um, articulated, that Christians had to make some kind of effort, some kind of contribution to their own salvation. You couldn't save yourself. God's grace is always necessary in in late medieval theology as well. It was assumed that you had to do something. You had to respond. You were not simply a kind of the passive uh, vehicle for God to to impose his his grace on you and do it all, as it were. Luther thinks that that is how how God's grace works, and and that's how it has to work. He's so convinced about the utter depravity of of human nature as a result of the the fall um, that 
we can't make any effort and, or contribution to our own salvation, and the recognition of that is the very beginning of what genuine Christian life is. God does it all. God saves you all at once. And out of gratitude for this gift of unmerited gift of salvation, you will become, as it were, a kind of good works dynamo. So what was channeled into an incremental contribution to your own salvation on the basis of which you hoped at the end of your life God was going to give you the thumbs up, and it, certainly not the thumbs down, but it may be, maybe the thumbs sideways and you would go to purgatory. Yeah. Luther says it's all done already in this life. God's gift of grace is immediate. It's dependent on your recognition of just how sinful you are, and as a result of that, you are free – here's where freedom comes in – to serve your neighbor in love without anxiety about how is this contributing to my salvation or, or, or not. So it's really about a different understanding of God's relationship to human beings, a different way in which God interacts with and saves human beings, and how the relationship of one's faith is related to freedom. But for Luther, freedom is a very paradoxical freedom. It's it, he, he, he describes it as being bound. I mean, you're, you're, it's basically a kind of um, joyful slavery to service to others without counting the costs, without worrying about how is this going to benefit me or is this going to be a, a, a helpful or not. The, his point is, hey, once you're saved, you know, what else matters? Really nothing. So put yourself completely at Christ's disposal. That's how it's supposed to work. Hmm. It's a kind of selfless, constant, bound freedom to serve others um, as, as a result of your, your, your sense of certainty that God has saved you. Well, now I think about, of course, Pope Francis, or not Pope Francis, Saint Francis. Right. You know, called himself the the slave of God. Exactly. I mean, so this is not a brand new kind of image. No, no, certainly not. And um, there's, there, I mean, many of the things that Luther says are um, can be found in their antecedents for in in the Christian tradition before he he certainly draws on certain aspects in Augustine's theology in particular, mm-hmm. the extent to which particularly the old um, Augustine, the, the late Augustine, emphasizes the extent of human sinfulness, the need for God's grace, and so forth. So um, not only that, but others in the, in the medieval tradition as well. Bernard of Clairvaux, for example, is an important influence on Luther. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are there's certainly antecedents in that regard. There are also many of uh, people concerned with reform in the church before, before Luther. I mean, this is not something that, you know, he just came along and saw all these problems and thought, we really need to do something about this. Yeah. People have been aware of that, that literally for centuries before. What really makes the difference is that when push comes to shove, Luther is, is insistent on what he regards as his key cornerstone insight and thinks this is not just one sort of theological option within the church. It is the cornerstone and the keystone. And to the extent that the papacy and the defenders of the papacy are opposing it, they really are opposing the recovery of and rediscovery of the heart of the gospel itself. And, oh, and by the way, I figured out how to write these popular theological and religious treatises that are really provocative, and I'm going to do it in the vernacular language, mm-hmm. German. I'm a really good writer. And within three years, Luther goes from being essentially unknown. In the middle of 1517, there are very few people who even know who Martin Luther is, ex- aside from his Augustinian confreres and uh, the, the people who happened to come in contact with him in the few towns in central Germany where he'd, where he'd grown up and, and, and been a friar and a student. By 1520, Luther is the most published author since the invention of the printing press in the 1450s. Almost 300 editions of his works are published in the year 1520. Wow. In 1516, there was one. Huh. 
So it's it, it's just it's utterly unlike anything that's ever seen been he is seen. All before. of the bestseller charts. He's all of the bestseller charts. Yeah. I mean, Luther is responsible for something like one fifth of all the publications published anywhere in Germany during the decade of the 1520s are published by Martin Luther. Wow. He absolutely, absolutely kind of dwarves everyone else who's who's publishing at the time. He's the first kind of we would say Luther's the first author who went viral. Well, um, you made reference there uh, to there being other currents of awareness in the church that we need to reform. We have we have things got to get our house in order in a way. Certainly, some of the questions raised by Luther and his fellow early reformers, as you right. you know, we'll blah, we'll just use that as a catch-all sure. here, did lead to reforms within the church. Certainly, as a result of the Council of Trent, and I know, as you mentioned, you teach a class kind of on this too. Right. So, were there teachings that were originally proposed by? these reformers that the church did officially uh, embrace in contrast to the ones that we know were declared anathema? Right. So um, the so the, the, the two kind of – so the Council of Trent is, of course, the, the important uh, Catholic church council that meets in the 16th century, meets in three discrete time periods starting at the very end of 1545 and then concluding in 1563. And the really two – main goals of of the um, of the council the first is um, the condemnation and, and, and eradication of, of heresies so it is deliberately to to articulate to, to find in the writings of Luther uh, Calvin Zwingli other reformers religious claims doctrinal claims that are regarded to be incompatible with Catholic orthodoxy and to condemn them the other thrust and, and goal of the council is what they refer to as the reform of morals. So that's, you know, l- lots of problems within the religious orders, difficulties in the way in which, for example, uh, there had never been prior to the Council of Trent seminaries mm-hmm. uh, for the training of priests. I mean, to become a parish priest was really a kind of catch-as, catch-can uh, policy and practice that sometimes it's basically just apprenticing yourself to a guy and learning the Latin prayers adequately enough to be able to say the Mass. So there was the, the idea that, uh, we, you know, priests should be well-educated, they should be formed, I mean, clerical formation, all of that is, is a result of the Council of Trent. Now, to your question specifically about teachings— the Council of Trent doesn't take up – I've thought of it in quite exactly this way, but to the best of my knowledge, doesn't take up any of the teachings of the Reformers in terms of doctrines. What it does do is respond in a very significant way to um, its its own already existing realization before the Reformation that there are problems that need to be put in in in, in order, um, and and indeed certain kinds of things were already being done, but a much more sort of centralized, top down institutionally self-conscious way of carrying out reforms within the disciplinary reforms, the education of the clergy, as I mentioned, uh, certain attitudes about, you know, how are pilgrimages conducted? How do we regard religious art? Um, these these sorts of things. Uh, getting rid of, of certain uh, – trying to get rid of certain kinds of superstitious practices regarding the, the, the use of relics and so forth and so on. Those kind of things are, are I think – to a very large extent, their their self consciousness, their deliberateness, deliberateness, their cent- centralization are are really a result of the the, the, the challenge of the Reformation. But in t- on the doctrinal side, it's not. Oh yeah, that's a pretty good idea about justification by by faith alone. Maybe we should adopt that too. Right. Although it is debated seriously in the first sessions of the Council, and there are, there was a group of of Italian, particularly Italian reformers within the reform-minded cardinals and theologians within the church um, that 
we're attracted to those kinds of ideas. And until Car- Reginald Pohl, for example, is quite attracted to and, and impressed by the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it's not until the official conciliar uh, decree, the, the Tridentine decree on justification in 1547 that, okay, now you know the, the Church has decided. It is articulated for the first time in the history of the Catholic Church an explicit doctrine of justification. And now the Church, in a sense, has decided. That, that, sure. was, that was theologically open. Now, whatever you say about it needs to be, you know, fit within the within parameters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the recurring themes in Rebel in the Ranks, kind of a phrase that I saw several times, is this concept that the good life became the goods life. Um, Clearly related to the class that we chatted about earlier. What does that mean? And uh, where does this idea really uh, take root and spread? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just a clever, well, I, as clever as I can be anyway, uh, <laughs> phrase to try to describe this, you know, this transition, the, the, the classic, both both um, ancient Greek and, and sort of traditional Christian notion of the good life as being, you know, the, the goal of, of the way human beings ought to think about their lives. The, the point both of eth- ethics and politics is mm-hmm. to lead a life that's going to be both the common good that will promote the individual good in substantive ethical um, f- ways that contribute to human flourishing. What we have in the modern era is instead a notion uh, very widely spread, not not 100 percent, but very widespread, that um, material possessions and the accumulation of, of more and better stuff, to use the, a technical term, uh, is, is, is going to contribute to individuals' happiness. Now, there is a sense in which, to an extent, that is uh, uh, clearly the case in the sense that People living in abject poverty, uh, subject to recurrent subsistence crises in in crop fa- from crop failures and so forth, are unlikely to be able to lead uh, flourishing human lives. And of course, material prosperity does make possible all kinds of human possibilities in terms of education, in terms of travel, in terms of human activities and so forth that would be unimaginable in a pre-industrial world. So that point is is, is valid. It seems to me even within a Catholic framework. That said, the, the, the notion in the modern era that basically the state exists to protect individual rights and among those rights is the right for everyone to buy as much uh, of whatever they want, uh, whenever they want, without regard or, or concern for anyone else, at least up to the level of their credit limit, uh, seems to me to have very little, if anything, to do with a traditional Christian or indeed an ancient Greek notion of what the good life is. So we moved from the good life to the goods life. Mm -hmm. And people won't be surprised uh, to learn I'm a Reformation historian. So I think not just because I'm a Reformation historian, but especially because of that, that it is the, the religious disagreements and the conflicts, the unresolved conflicts of the Reformation era, the 16th and the first half of the 17th centuries, that really are the key precipitant for the, uh, the, first, the, the, the first real innovations come in the, the, the Dutch Republic, the Golden Age Dutch Republic, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the era of all those beautiful still life paintings and of Rembrandt and Vermeer you know, making these extraordinary paintings and, and of, of the Dutch becoming the first kind of global commercial empire. They, they're really the ones who point the way toward the future because what the Dutch figure out essentially is that a limited measure of religious toleration is good for business. That um, if you give people the opportunity 
especially by the end of the Thirty Years' War that tore Europe apart in a series of conflicts between 1618 and 1648. If you give Europeans that have been devastated by war the choice of risking another round of more of the same or to go shopping, they're going to choose to go shopping. Mm -hmm. And not to put too fine a point on it, but you could really boil down my argument to saying that's sort of what we've been doing ever since. The British learned from the Dutch – and that strange new republic called the United States of America in the late 18th century learns from the British and uh, in the course of the 19th century through industrialization, through the, the protection of individual rights um, and so forth, um, creates the, the – in a certain sense, the society more dedicated to any other in the history of the world to the good life being the goods life which is ironic because, of course, the United States also has a sense of itself as such a Christian nation compared now to, right, supposedly deeply secularized uh, post-Christian Europe. Well, as we come up on the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, do you perceive there being open questions that maybe that Martin Luther posed in his 95 theses? Oh, you mean that are still yet to be— Yeah, kind of unresolved? Um. You know, the, I mean, the 95 Theses is a very particular document. I mean, it really is it, – it, most people who come to it who have some interest in the Reformation and say, ah, I want to read that, that you know, the, the treatise, the document that started it all, almost everyone has the, the kind of a frumpled brow and a, and, a, and, a, and a wrinkled, you know, forehead look when they, when they read them because these are terse, mostly just one-sentence statements. These are These are – Propositions, propositions, for debate, right? propositions for debate. They're scholastic. They they presupposed a fair amount of technical knowledge, both of of Christian theology of penance, some canon law, and they're really not all that um, <laughs> inspiring or earth shattering. So the the ninety five theses, I think, are 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 sort of context specific, if you will. Mm-hmm. They imply, though, and, and what really provides the bridge between them and the subsequent controversies that start to emerge already early in the year 1518 is Luther's statements that imply uh, limits on and that characterize what papal authority supposedly can and cannot do because, of course, indulgences are issued on the basis of papal authority. And so Luther there is he's, – he's doing what, what – uh, you know, a good theologian should do, trying to parse and understand how are the relationships between the various components of indulgences and the theology of penance and so forth related to one another. But when push comes to shove, Luther can't believe that some of the papacy's defenders are defending what, what, what they start to defend. So I suppose, I mean, in, in this sense, um, to go back to your original question, are there questions that Luther posed or, or asked that, that haven't been you know, f- fully resolved? I mean, I suppose you know, you, there are there are ways in which it seems to me that um, questions about the relationship between the the Pope, the bishops in their diocese, and the Universal Church, and 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 all Christians within the Catholic Church are related to one another. Were certainly much commented upon and expanded, say, at the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. But I think as we continue to see um, within the church, not only lay people, but also professional theologians continue to try to understand and debate that. So it seems to me that, you know, those those deep questions about authority and and what is the best, you know, way for it to be exercised so that we both maintain the unity that is a sign of truth and a sign of uh, one of the signs of, of the church, but also 
legitimately allow that range of diversity and creative expression and human flourishing across all cultures and peoples, that also must be a sign of the church, that unity does not mean uniformity. That, it seems to me, is is still related to questions that, that, that Luther raised, questions uh, related to papal authority and, and the best way that authority ought to be exercised and carried through the church. Well, Professor Brad Gregory, thank you very much for your time today. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Professor Brad Gregory. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. You can subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.